Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Raw Podcast with me, your host, Christine Grace. Today, I have Stacey Madden on the podcast. She is a mindful somatic wellness practitioner, meditation and yoga teacher with training and certifications in the field of somatic experiencing, movement for trauma, interpersonal neurobiology, and mind-body therapy. She combines the science of both mind and body through various therapeutic somatic modalities to assist her clients in remembering and reorganizing themselves on all levels of being for greater health and wholeness. We took a deep dive into understanding somatics, the nervous system, and the polyvagal ladder, or the fight-flight freeze, fawn, shutdown response, and what it means to be trauma-informed. We later shift gears near the end to discuss intersectional feminism, racism, biases, and navigating opinions around trans rights. Talking with Stacy was such a pleasure, and I was really surprised with how she explained certain concepts. Her thorough and digestible descriptions truly made this episode one to re-listen to and take notes on. Before we dive in, I just want to briefly mention our brand partner, Purium the superfood nutrition and holistic lifestyle brand that offers nutrition, gut health, and sleep cycle supplements that seamlessly fit into our lives. For more info and an in-depth description of how you can simultaneously support your health and the podcast, please listen to my brief ad at the end of the show and check out the show notes. Now, without further ado, let's meet Stacey Madden. Well, thanks, Stacy, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. You've actually been um, both Favra and Tarzi, who have been on the podcast, um, both came highly recommended. So it was just, and I, I knew you ahead of time from the school teaching, um, but it was just like, hey, clearly, clearly we need to get you on. So, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 it's awesome. That's nice. Um, and your specialty is somatic-based work, correct? Yeah. Like that's kind of what you've div- dove into. Um, could you give us, maybe start with us, just a, what does, um, I've heard somatics kind of uh, spoke about in a couple different ways. So I just want to know how you would kind of define that for us. Yeah. So when you say the word somatics, it can mean so many different things to so many different people. Right. You know, It's almost like saying yoga now in a way. Right. And I think for me, when I'm talking about somatics, I'm talking about the body, uh, the soma as history, present, uh, future, nervous system mm-hmm. um, that encapsulates a biopsychosocial sort of spiritual viewpoint. So to sort of sum that up, that's a little bit as the body as current human being. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than the body being something separate or right. less than mind right. or unnecessary or something to be discarded. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's, a, it's kind of an all-encapsulating sort of viewpoint. Um, because I'm trained and certified in a variety of somatic practices mm-hmm. that sometimes even bump into each other a little bit. Interesting. Um, those different viewpoints give me kind of like a broader tapestry to work within. So I'm trained in Hannah somatics okay. um, by Tana, Thomas Hannah, who 
trained with, you know, Moshe Feldenkrais and that, 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 that whole realm, okay. um, which I've also done some training in. And then I'm also trained in somatic experiencing Peter Levine's work. Mm-hmm. And then of course, I'm also a yoga and trauma-informed yoga instructor. Okay. Yeah. So there's all these different sort of windows and viewpoints into this sort of mind-body therapy process. Cool. And then you have kind of, I don't want to say necessarily branded yourself, but what you kind of say you are is mindful somatic wellness, (laughs) right? How much more generic could you get? Yeah. Well, I, I wouldn't actually say that's too generic. Like we have to, that's the problem with any type of putting something out there is we have to brand it as something. So you actually did choose words that mean something, but for that, and cause you kind of said that somatics have a tendency to bump up against each other. Um, why did you choose that as like, what does that mean to you when you're putting that out there? I didn't want to really define it as something totally specific. Okay. Um, because it's really not. It's really about how people show up at any given moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to put the word mindful in there because it is sort of a a mindfulness process through the body Mm -hmm. um, to the brain. Um, And of course, somatic, like I, that's growing more and more. People are really understanding that word. Whereas before you said the word and people didn't really know what it meant. Mm -hmm. It feels like yoga about 20 years ago. Right. (laughs) And then the wellness- yeah. <laughs> and then the wellness piece was, uh, you know, I, it's an overused term too, but it gives people an idea of what to expect. Right. And maybe a direction to go in when they okay. meet with me or come to my classes. Yeah. Cool. 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 Um, so now I'm actually kind of curious because you said when you said that this, you find the somatic work sometimes bumps up against each other. Um, could you describe a little bit of what Hannah somatics you kind of learned there and what you learned in the somatic experiencing and where you find they bump up? Yeah. Hannah somatics uh, and clinical somatics and essential somatics main focus really is um, pain management through the nervous system. Okay. Through really specific to the individual movements where you're repatterning nervous system to brain capacity. Okay. So, and I don't want to pigeonhole them either because they do a lot of work, but it is really, really strictly body-based, okay. but not overtly trauma-informed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It does, they don't really operate, to my understanding, my experience with it, it's not, they don't operate through a trauma-informed lens necessarily. Okay. Whereas somatic experiencing, for instance, which is something else that I'm certified to offer, mm-hmm. um, is based as a trauma resolution protocol in essence. Hmm. So its main lens is trauma resolution through the nervous system. Interesting. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So I can see, I could see how they might complement each other a little bit, but I understand what you mean about how they could kind of bump up against each other. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So do you ever find yourself when working that you're kind of like torn between which method to use or have you kind of figured out where to use what type thing? Yeah, I've sort of blended the practices together. Like I've actually sort of filtered the Hannah somatics, even the Feldenkrais that I offer 
Um, and some of the yoga asana that I offer through the somatic experiencing lens. Okay. So that all gets filtered through the big bubble that I work underneath is Peter Levine's work of somatic experiencing. So that sort of informs everything that I do Okay. is, uh, you know, the nervous system and completion cycles, et cetera, which we can get into. Sure. Um, and then into this, I also pepper in um, processing mm-hmm. Jean Gendlin's work of processing and focusing. Okay. Um, and then also relational work, um, like parts work, nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. I pepper in some of that as well, all things that I'm certified and, and, you know, have the availability to reach for. So I have a number of different sort of threads that I can pull from when I sit with people. So it's not all necessarily trauma resolution and it's all, not all necessarily movement practice. Right. But what I found in the HANA somatics was it was a beautiful amount of um, rest and regeneration in the movement practice, mm-hmm. um, but maybe not enough guidance as to what might have been coming up in nervous systems. Okay. <laughs> and then in the, Han- in the uh, essential, or not the essential somatics, the somatic experiencing piece, sometimes I sort of felt like there can be more movement. Mm. <laughs> like broader movement of the body mm-hmm. uh, and maybe even sometimes a little more uh, directive or suggestive okay. to people like offering movement that you're seeing and going maybe a little bit more movement. Mm-hmm. So that's where I sort of merged, you know, those two practices. Interesting. So then you touched on the nervous system um, and that's obviously probably one of the biggest pieces when it comes to trauma um, and body-based things is our connection with our nervous system and understanding the nervous system. So if I was like a complete newbie and needed to get like nervous system 101, how would you explain, how would you kind of start somebody who like didn't really understand their nervous system at all? I think one of the best places to start, even with people who have a deeper understanding is with the flight, fight, freeze and shutdown. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people have heard of flight, fight. It seems Mm -hmm. to be pretty common vernacular nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, And then into that, when it becomes a little more complicated, well, and it doesn't even have to become complicated. I offer Deb Dana's work of the polyvagal ladder, which is a big step up from Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory. So it offers um, visual cards and imagery for people to look at fight flight freeze there's lots and lots and lots of visuals for people Mm -hmm. who are visual learners Mm -hmm. there's a lot of body-based investigation that you can safely do in flight fight freeze fawn shut down (laughs) and then there's some reflective practices that can go along with them but central to all of those pieces is an opportunity to be in the body what are they noticing at any given moment when these words are, are offered to them, when this thought process, this bodily process, this somatic suggestion is, is offered to them, what do they notice even when they hear the words? And that's usually a really good place to start with beginners. Hmm. Yeah. So like you said, we are kind of fairly, most people understand fight and flight. Like that's like you fight or you're gonna run kind of thing. Um, how would you describe fawn or I mean, freeze, I guess also kind of is good, but what's the distinction between fawn and freeze? 
Fawn is considered a blended state between shutdown and fight and flight. Okay. Yeah, so it gets a little more complicated. You could think of um, fight, flight as a green light where there's a request for mobilization in the system or go. Okay. Which is where movement becomes really helpful in mm-hmm. understanding and, and feeling and completing those spaces, those mm-hmm. uh, impulses in the system. And then freeze is this really interesting response that we have even as complicated mammals where we need to stop everything when we don't feel like we can survive whatever danger we might be neurocepting at the moment. Freeze tends to have a higher tone to it muscularly. Okay. So there tends to be a lot of frozen energy or life force in the system in a freeze state. Mm-hmm. Um, Babette Rothschild refers to, and she's often not very cited in a lot of work, which is unfortunate, but she's basically created distinction or has investigated and taught distinction between a high tone freeze and a low tone freeze. High tone freeze is where there's some muscular bracing. A low tone freeze, is, and this is how Stephen Porges sort of describes it too, is almost a vasal vagal response where there's no muscular tone and there's no awareness closer to a disassociative state. So freeze can be broken up into a couple of different parts. Freeze can get kind of complicated for for people and for our understanding. Right. Yeah. But when people start to understand or learn these nuances to each one of these steps on the ladder up to safe and social, we learn so much more about ourselves. Mm -hmm. We'll tend to actually realize like, wow, that explains that moment in time when I, mm-hmm. something happened, I had right. this response or something came up for me, or I saw somebody else do this and I just didn't understand what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Total shutdown is when we've gone what's called dorsal vagal, our lower vagal nerve circuits are on and we're actually accessing um, earlier responsive patterns for survival. And by earlier, I mean, in terms of evolution, because polyvagal theory is considered a phylogenetic or an evolutionary um, strategy for survival. Okay. Yeah. And then fawn is quite, (laughs) well, I don't want to add any words to it. Fawn is confusing for a lot of people. And it's a newer Mm. concept that was really sort of talked about by a specific master social worker in the States whose name I can't bring to mind right now. Mm, I want to say Jeff Walker, but it's not Jeff Walker. He's a psychologist in Toronto. Um, And then it's been expanded upon and explained by science, by polyvagal theory and explained by a couple of other routes. And FAWN is a blended state when we perceive threat, but we can't go into freeze or shutdown and we need to escape. So when we're in fun, typically what happens is we get a big smile on our face, our eyes go really big, the prosody of our voice goes up a little bit higher, we're actually in a flight state and a fight state, and a little bit of a free state. Okay. All at one time. And Interesting. <laughs> yeah, and it can feel kind of confusing. How we understand it as a reflex in our system, meaning that we just really can't control it, is we will feel confused after being in a fawn state, being mm-hmm. in a fawn response or a fawn reflex. Mm-hmm. There will be some cognitive dissonance about our own behavior. And because humans are so great at overthinking everything and, and then applying 
uh, self-judgment to our thought patterns, we'll usually think there's something wrong with us. Mm-hmm. So an example of fun, and this one can be a little controversial, and that was the word I was going to use about this entire state, is you know a friend of mine, and I'll use a personal story, and I, any story I use, I have the permission of the people to share these, just so that you know this is all done consensually. Oh, is that better? Yeah. Just watch your hand was right on the mic. That's all. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But she was in Costco. And so this was a while ago, pre-COVID. And she was shopping. And she felt like someone was staring at her. So already she was what's called neurocepting danger, had a neuroception of danger. I mean, when I go to Costco, I feel like I'm in danger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, right, I don't even go there. I make my partner go there because I can't even handle the parking lot. But so she is in Costco. She's already neurocepting danger. She, somebody was staring at her. They sort of caught eyes. She didn't really like it. But she didn't have time to like process that because you have to do your groceries and it's so busy and the environment is so loud. There's all these fluorescent lights. Like it's just such a confusing environment, I think, for a nervous system in places like that. And she gets out to her car with her groceries that are usually not, like not in bags, like they're in boxes and you're trying to shove them in your car. And this man comes up to her and says, let me help you unload your groceries. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could see you take a breath right there, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So she wasn't in distress. She didn't need help. She was doing just fine unloading her groceries. She wasn't asking for help. But in that moment, it felt like it happened so quickly for her. She couldn't say no. No was not accessible for her in that moment. Yeah. It was too rapid. He didn't have a gun. He didn't have a knife. She wasn't under any obvious threat. And she let him help her with her groceries. And he was asking for her phone number and does she have a card? And he noticed her in the store and thought she was beautiful and da-da-da-da-da. And she just sort of did what we all and many of us have done, which is nod and smile and be like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't give my, yeah, okay. And made a boundary and then got into her car and scuttled away. And as she was driving, she said that she just went into a bit of a shock state and then just started to cry. She didn't know what had happened to her. Right. And she turned it into, like many of us do, like a a character assassination, our very own character assassination. What's wrong with me? Right. Why didn't I say no? Why didn't I tell that guy to off and get away from me? Why didn't I create boundaries all the time? You know, it becomes this narrative. It becomes a really, really almost for some people obsessive, self-shaming sort of narrative when we go into fawn because it's not very well understood. And... Hmm. You know, one of the sayings in polyvagal theory that I find so helpful, and this is a great example of that, is when our internal state is confusing to us, we will create narrative in order to make sense of how we're feeling. Right. So when something doesn't feel like it makes sense in our internal state, we'll often create a really complicated limbic system-based narrative to try to explain to ourselves what happened. And this is common. I mean, a lot of women have gone through this. So maybe it's a character assassination if you're totally present in your body in that moment in time and you're able to stop everything and say no and create the strong boundary. And... But many of us were just not set up for that for, for a lot of different reasons, lots and lots mm-hmm. of different reasons. We're just not always set up in our early life or early childhood or even socially constructed for us to slow things down and say no. Right. And then we blame ourselves. So, so interesting. So, man, thank you for explaining Fawn that way. I definitely had it 
um, in my mind a little bit differently. So um, what was happening for me um, is I realized I think that's my more dominant um, reaction is a fawn thing because I kind of, um, in social situations, people all the time have thought I'm this crazy extrovert and that I really love um, being the center of attention. And I understand from their idea why that's the case. But what actually happens for me is I feel super socially awkward. And my defense mechanism is I over talk. And I talk a lot because talking for me is like a, it's how I process. I'm an external processor a lot of the time. So um, talking for me is like soothing. Um, but I will kind of do that so much that I forget how much I'm talking. And like, then, like you said, something will, the, will leave the social situation. And then the energies have left the, everything calms down. And I'll literally go into what the fuck just happened. Why did I, why was I like that? And it's become this like ongoing thing. And I like, I don't really do the, what just fuck happened much anymore. Like I've started to understand what's happening, but I never understood it in terms of my nervous system or actually a response happening in my nervous system. Um, Cause that would basically be like a fawn response that I'm kind of fighting. I'm kind of, I'm not flighting because I'm staying, but I'm not like present and calm either. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super interesting. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that with me. That's such a great way to look at it and think about it and explore it even somatically. Right. Because when we're in fawn, if it's a blended state between freeze and fight and flight, like that's very confusing. That's a Mm -hmm. lot of things going on in our body at one time. And, you know, reaching into the body and being like, wow, like when I'm in these, what could be categorized as a fawn state, like what is my internal messaging? And so somatic experiencing and um, focusing practices and even relational parts where it can be so helpful to sort of go into those moments and say, what am I noticing in my body when I even remember being there? Right. Being in that situation, like what? what is coming up for me? What am I, what do I notice in my feet? What do I notice in my shoulders? And then that way we can explore it as like a body response that is looking for completion and is seeking safe and social. That's why we go into fun, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Without it having to be, like I said before, some sort of character assassination, like what's wrong with me, which is what we'll default to, right? Because we're humans with a frontal cortex. (laughs) that we think it's our fault basically yeah we'll default to a really complicated narrative because we have this great front brain that wants to figure everything out yeah isn't that just so interesting Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so could you take us through what the like you said there's a polyvagal theory and then the polyvagal ladder yeah so could you explain what the ladder is and is it actually linear yeah it's quite linear so it's The work of Deb Dana, because Stephen Porges will talk about um, in his earlier days, like if you look on YouTube, like I always show a video in the trainings and stuff that I do where he talks about the nervous system sort of being like a triangle. Okay. So at the bottom is our most, like for lack of a better word, like just to sort of be clear about it, like a a reptilian response. Let's just say that. Some people really push against triune brain theory, but we'll use it here. So that's our most basic reptilian shutdown responses. And then as you go up this triangle, so it's a triangle standing on its point, right? With the Mm -hmm. base at the top, there's all of this space at the top where we can access all sorts of interesting ways to feel safe and social within our own bodies and with other people. So we're seeking safety. 
Um, so Deb Dana has taken this triangle and she's turned it into a ladder, <laughs> which is a really helpful for people, especially children particularly. And at the bottom rung of the ladder is shutdown. Okay. And then, the, and we could put freeze in there. We'll say freeze is maybe above that. A rung up is freeze, say. People might argue with me on that one. That's okay. I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll talk about it. The step up from there is fight. The next rung on the ladder is flight. And then the very top of the ladder is safe and social. That's what it's called, safe and social. But you, it, it, that's pretty basic, right? Like we could all mm -hmm. sort of think about where am I on the ladder at any given time, which is a tool I give to people when I work with them and in the classes that I run when I show this and teach this particular image. As a tool, at any given time, are you able to stop and say, huh, where am I on the ladder right now? Hmm. Like, and sorry, I? Uh, would fawn be just before safe and social? I would say fawn is a blended state. I I'm not even sure okay. I put fawn on the ladder. Okay. Like play is considered a blended state too. So safe play, like imagining puppies rolling around or kids um, playing football or soccer or something where they're face to face okay. and they're actually working against each other. Like they're competing against each other, even with touch, like rolling around, like think of football or puppies or something that looks yeah. quite physically aggressive. And yet at the end they can separate, still be friends. Right. Like it's not there wasn't total... confusion in That's the right. system. Okay. Yeah. It wasn't a threat state. They right. weren't under absolute threat thinking there uh, on some level that they were going to die or something. Um, so Fawn's not really on that ladder. Okay. The ladder's kind of basic, but you could think of lots of different rungs as opposed to just those four or five. Like you could put, a, um, de depending on your nervous system, you could put like a hundred rungs. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Or you could keep it kind of basic. The safe and social piece, like, I don't think anybody's there right now. Fair. Hmm. I just don't. I think we get closer. We might have moments of it or we'll kind of like feel into it a little bit. Um, but you know, what's really beautiful about using this ladder idea visualization is that now we can actually stop and say, oh, this is safe and social when we are there. Oh, this is what it feels like for me to feel grounded and connected and yet ready to respond. So like I was saying, this is something that I offer lots of people at any, it seems so simplistic, so simplistic. But when you actually reach into your own nervous system and say, I'm driving my car, mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> it's a rush hour on Deerfoot. Right. Like, am I feeling very safe and social right now? No, I might be fight, feeling kind of fight and flight. Right. All right, good. Now I'm aware of it. It's okay to be in fight flight right now. Like this serves me. These reaction patterns actually really help me. Right. So how does it feel in my body? And then that's the question that I give everybody all the time. They get sick of hearing me say it. How does it feel in your body? Right. What is your body telling you about this right now? Your brain's decided something. Okay, we'll, we'll give your brain a bone. <laughs> What's so the body going to tell you? With the safe and social piece, my, my question that's coming to me, can you be safe, but not social? Like, can you be in safety and be like, I, but I'm safe because I'm at home and I, I'm like an introvert who doesn't want to be social. Like, what a fantastic work? question. That's such a good question. And I'm so glad you asked that mm -hmm. because Steve Porges will talk about this specifically just because we are 
in this higher ventral vagal space, as it's called. The vagus nerve is attuned and online and ready to give us safe information all the way up our body around our eyes, our ears, and our mouth. So our whole body's humming, right, with safe and social vibration. It doesn't necessarily mean that we want to spend time with other human beings. Okay. <laughs> we can be there. Mm -hmm. We can be within our window of tolerance, but we don't need to actually interact with other people. And in fact, just interacting with other people, the idea of it can drop people out of a safe, safe and social state and drop them down that ladder right. pretty quickly, depending on their nervous system. Right. Another thing that um, sometimes flips the script for a lot of people is that, you know, and this is not untrue, like this is true to a degree that as humans were wired for to be social, that we're wired to be together. Mm -hmm. uh, we're wired for connection. Like you'll hear that. And that mm -hmm. is true. There are, there are, you know, there's a lot of anthropological study around that. There's lots of social study around that psychological study around how we need to be around other people. Um, but if we are in a fight flight state in our polyvagal system, so if we're not feeling totally safe and social being around other people, we won't be able to utilize other people as a safe resource. And in fact, we'll drop down that ladder or we'll hang out and fight flight, and not be able to get out of it because of other people. Hmm. So there've been some studies that have been done through this lens. Um, and there's more and more all the time, but what they've seen so far is that a person or a soma, a, a human who is nervous system, brain, body, spirit, skin, tongue, eyes, emotions, past, present, future, mm -hmm when they're down the polyvagal ladder, let's say, when they're more in fight or flight, when they look at other people's faces, they will interpret neutral faces as angry. Mm -hmm. So they'll right. see neutral faces as being angry. So they're perceiving even neutral faces as threat. Right. They will see um, sad faces as threatening. They'll see anything that's not threatening as threatening. So they won't be able to actually, dis when we're there, we're not capable of actually looking at other faces and using them necessarily as a tool to go up to safe and social. Mm -hmm. There's like a lack of discernment, basically. You can't figure out what's what. Yeah, we're in survival. Right. So as much as we're wired for connection, we're more wired for survival. Right. Right. So if we're inherently... And I mean, many of us are right now, if we're inherently in fight, if we're inherently in flight, if we're in, in, any, in any of these blended states, if we're almost going down into a freeze or a shutdown state, if we're hovering a, a rung above that, the whole world will look threatening. Right. Everything will be perceived as threat because it's a system that's trying to survive. Hmm. So our nervous system is not wired for thrive. It doesn't care if we have a great life. It doesn't care if we have friends. It doesn't care if we have pets. It cares if we, that we survive the given right. moment. Right. Yeah. So Interesting. we want to fight against shutdown inherently. So our body, when we feel like we're going into shutdown, if it's not a safe shutdown, so a blended safe shutdown would be like going to sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, we can shut down our body. We're feeling safe and social and yet we're going into a shutdown so we can fall asleep and have a good mm -hmm. sleep all night. If we're finding ourselves going into a shutdown that's not a safe and social shutdown, we will instinctively and biomechanically, biophysiologically, maybe in some circles they would even say unconsciously or subconsciously, we will fight against going into that shutdown or free state because that's the least defended state that we're in. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So when people are perceiving that they are being put into a shutdown or they're being enforced into an immobilized state, mm-hmm. or they fear that that's happening even in their own internal system, they will go up a rung into fight. So we'll see a lot of fight, mm-hmm. which is great because mm-hmm. it stops us from going down the ladder. And the request for fight is movement. Right. It just wants to move, to feel right. safe, to have boundaries, to have self-agency. Right. To, you know, make decisions about body and safety and relationship. And then when we start moving out of fight, the next rung that we have to go up, generally speaking, I'm speaking pretty generally, yeah. is we'll go into flight. We are wired to then go up that rung into like, I've defended. Now, how do I get out of here? Right. <laughs> I've defended my space. Now, how the hell do I get out of here? How do I escape this? Right. And if we can navigate that, we will maybe float up to closer to safe and social, or we'll feel like a down regulation in our nervous system. Like a calming? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. maybe okay. a parasympathetic state, but we can still feel a bit of sympathetic charge in, in safe social. Yeah. Yeah, because safe social doesn't mean that we're Zen, it just means that we're we can access these survival things and then they'll go away pretty rapidly. It's when we get stuck in them. So you mentioned that there is like a safe and social shutdown. So that would almost be like both, like the whole ladder is able to experience. And so I'm going to assume that that, well, I can kind of say like, that's when you, you, you give yourself maybe permission to rest or permission to go into, like I had a, a really intense experience a few weeks ago of just uncovering a different layer of trauma. I'm someone who I do a lot of inner work. It's like probably borderline and obsession. Um, I hear <laughs> but, you. But <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the woman very, very, it was very awesome of her. It was actually Favra. Actually, she told me she, and she was like, Christine, you might go into shutdown. So just be kind of prepared for that. And I was like, okay, and I did, and I went into shutdown and, um, but I didn't fight it. And I think sometimes that's that key. Cause that would be just above it. Interesting. Okay. I'm understanding that because I allowed shutdown to happen. I allowed the system to calm down. I allowed myself, like I went in, in my covers in my bed where I feel safe, you know? Um, so that would be a safe and social shutdown that you're not trying to fight the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, maybe your nervous system is going into a shutdown in complete survival pattern, like some, at some point in your history, you were close to a shutdown, or you got stuck there. And maybe an aspect of your nervous system was never really able to complete it or come out. So there's a part of you that's experiencing this shut this degree of shutdown Mm -hmm. and it sounds to me like when you relay that story what I hear is that there was a safe person outside of you saying like to trust this process and then you were also sort of encapsulated in something that helped you feel safe and social or was a resource for you to feel safe and social so that you could experience shutdown safely and maybe complete it so how do we know it's not complete how do we know when we've gone into a shutdown and it's not complete Mm -hmm. this is the big question Mm -hmm. If it's been a safe, social, healthy, helpful shutdown, you probably won't feel totally dysregulated afterwards. You'll be something that we call, we'll call ventral vagal. Your system will be able to circulate. I see it as a big circle and you'll come back up and you'll be in the sunshine again. Your eyes, your optic nerves will actually be more open to receiving light. You'll feel better. You'll actually see more of the space that you're in. You'll actually hear things mm-hmm. more clearly. And yet there will be kind of an overall calm to it. 
Right. Now, let's say you go into a shutdown that isn't complete. It hasn't had a chance to ride itself through. There's an aspect of you that doesn't quite feel safe or you need to do it a couple of times. There's a dysregulation afterwards. You don't feel good. You haven't gone ventral vagal. You're exhausted. You're wiped out. You're crying. You don't feel connected. You can't get out of bed for a few days. Mm -hmm. That's not been probably a very effective shutdown state. So to get out of that, would someone have to bring themselves back up the ladder and back down? Like, is that how you get out of it or? Theoretically, yeah. Okay. And I'm, but I don't want this to apply to all humans because how, right. like, like, I just, who, who can predict this kind of stuff, right? Right. But what we've seen and even what I've experienced personally in my own practice as well as seeing other people is that, yeah, there is a tendency for our nervous system to move through these states to get back up to safe and social. Hmm. Um, and it can be barely there or it can happen really fast. We climb those rungs really rapidly and then we arrive at something akin to safe social. Some people will hang out a little bit more on one rung more than the other. Hmm. So here's a way that I see that. Okay, I'm coming out of shutdown. It didn't feel really good. You know what? Here's, here's the example that I use. I had a big argument with my partner mm-hmm. and I didn't know what to say and I froze up. And how do we know it's freeze? My question, like, what's freeze? How do, what's your body tell you it's freeze? I didn't move. I just kind of stood there. My hands actually feel kind of cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, the room was dark. Um, I could feel my heart, but I felt sick in my stomach. It could be all sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. The shutdown or free state. And then, you know what? I got really mad. And I was like, forget you, partner. Guess what? I'm so mad. You've done all these. Remember what happened 10 years ago when you did that thing and it's still happening right now? Well, forget you. And you know what? I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I hate this place. It's over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's it. I'm going for a drive. I'm going for a walk. I'm like, forget you. Uh, and yeah. then they come back and they're like, actually, okay. You know what? I've had some time to think about it. Mm. <laughs> and it's this. And it's very logical. It's this really yeah. rapid succession, especially if the person or the nervous system, the soma, the spirit, however you want to look at it, especially if they answer the desire to move. Hmm. I'm going for a walk. That's it. I'm out of here. I'm going for a walk. I'm going to slam the door behind me because that's still a little bit of fight, right? right? I'll slam this door behind me and then I'm going to go for a walk. So interesting. There's flight. Great. Wow. Okay. So if we were sitting together and maybe there were someone and this was their experience, I'd be like, holy moly, you just went through the whole ladder. Mm-hmm. So what are you feeling right now? What's your body telling you? What are you noticing? Can we hang out with that for a little while? Can we be with it? What's showing up? Can we move the body? Um, and if there's anything left over, and lots of times there can be, right? Mm-hmm. And we'd kind of work on that. Or they just feel like, yeah, nah, we made up. We're good. Right. Uh, but that's also not to gaslight any, anybody's who, experience who's like, no, I really need to leave this relationship. It's actually quite abusive or, oh, or of right. like not exist. at all. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That is, that has helped make so much sense for me. Um, and the vagus nerve is what controls all that or like is control isn't maybe not the right word, but it's a big part of it. The vagus nerve is considered like our safety system or social safety system okay you know, according to this theory so you know without getting too anatomical about it it's originates in three nerves that come out of our cervical spine okay. and then in these three pathways roll through the face around the eyes the optical nerves 
um, the muscles of the mouse, mouth, the muscles of the middle ear, down the throat. It might wind its way around a person's or get close to like their vocal cords. Okay. Thyroid, parathyroid gland, it'll move down around the heart, past the lungs. It runs, some of it will run sort of astride the esophagus. <laughs> oh, pardon me, my cat came and sat by me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love her, but. I don't, her dander doesn't always agree with me. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it wanders all over the body, but some of its main branches also tie into the digestive system and the reproductive system. So the enteric nervous system and what's called the uh, pelvolumbar, the pelvic lumbar nerve plexus, this nerve okay. plexus above the, the pelvis pelvic region. And then that aspect of this polyvagal system or pathway um, vagal meaning vagus meaning wandering so it's everywhere um, and mm. poly meaning that it's this variety of responses but the enteric nervous system that's a part of this polyvagal system that winds around our digestive tract our large and small intestine as well as the reproductive organs and has to do with this nerve plexus this is a part of the vagus nervous subdiaphragmatic or below the diaph- the respiratory diaphragm, this part of the vagus nerve can really play havoc with our digestive system. Gotcha. Yeah. So I end up sort of seeing um, people sometimes who are like, man, I have done everything. Like I've had every allergy test. I've done elimination diets. I've seen doctors. One doctor called it this. Five years later, it was called this. You know, X, Y, Z. I don't know what to do about it. And, you know, like, I, I am not a doctor. I, I don't have x-ray vision. I don't know. But my offering is like, wow, what if we kind of did some movement practices in around this lower diaphragmatic vagal nerve, especially this nerve plexus? Because it's not always what we put in our mouth. Right. Sometimes it's whether we feel safe or not. And so right. this nervous aspect of our nervous system will squeeze and release or send all sorts of messages about evacuate the most quickly. Now we've got to run or hold mm. on and don't let go. Cause it's not safe to actually let go. Right. Yeah. It's, it's really, really fascinating. A lot of the uh, newer research that's coming out about nervous system, specifically polyvagal and digestive perceived digestive disorder. Perceived digestive disorder. I've never heard of that. So it's, well, like, it's, it's like a yeah. symptom basically rather than the cause. Nobody can put a thumb on it. Okay. Like, what is it actually? Right. Right. I've tried everything. Doctors just sort of pass you off to a specialist. A specialist doesn't know what to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. So sometimes it can be, I don't want to ever use the word resolve because I don't know, but sometimes it can be investigated or explored through the polyvagal pathway mm. and then tracked through the polyvagal system. Like what's actually happening? Where am I on the ladder? And then how is my digestive system sort of showing up? Hmm. That's so interesting. So would you say that that would be connected to what a trauma informed approach would be, or is that different? Sorry. No, that's okay. Um, just give me one quick second. Yeah. Right. So your question was about being trauma informed and if this is a part of being trauma informed. Yeah. And I would say, yeah, 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 it really is. Yeah. I mean, a long time ago when I did one of my first trauma-informed like teacher trainings for yoga teachers, Mm -hmm. the nervous system was a part of it. 
And if I remember correctly, there was some mention of polyvagal. Even in my 200 hour, though, there was mention of polyvagal without a ton of explanation, but it was there. This is a long time mm. ago. Um, but it revolved mostly around offering safe space through voice and offering choice right. through cueing. Right. And then even that um, sort of grew in and on itself. And then I remember like another training was um, never do the entire practice with your class hmm. um, and don't look at them and just offer options. And so it got really, really tight almost and okay. how to offer it over the years of taking trauma-informed training now before okay. it was just sort of like more offering of space. And then it turned into like um, everything, everything is a suggestion, mm -hmm. never give a directive. And then it sort of turned into consent cards and consent chips. And then there's that whole discussion, like maybe about 10 years ago now around adjustments and touching students. Mm -hmm whether to touch, what's safe touch, what, what actually does constitute consent, like what is consent in a space where we involve bodies and psyche, you know, that got really complicated for a while and really interesting. Um, and then kind of at this point, I've sort of arrived at, and this could change too, like this is an, an evolving situation, right? Mm -hmm. Is being a trauma-informed practitioner, I think the very fundamental of it is understanding nervous system, fundamentals just fight yep. flight freeze yeah shut down polyvagal theory on top of that you know gives great tools great visuals um, especially for body-based folks I think that's sort of the fundamental of it mm -hmm. so that we can start to understand primarily what's happening in our own body at any point in time like it always always has to start with the self mm -hmm. like what is my body doing right now what's my nervous system neurocepting and neuroception is a term unique to polyvagal theory, okay. which essentially describes assessing threat, hmm. both internally and externally, mostly unconsciously. Okay. So it's an unconscious threat surveillance system. Okay. That we don't really notice until we're directed to sort of pay attention to it. Right. So the first step for, for people who want to be trauma-informed, looking to be trauma-informed, who are, who are already tr calling themselves trauma-informed is having a really, really deep fundamental understanding of their self. Mm -hmm. Where am I at any given time on that right. ladder? And how does it feel in my body? Thank you for saying that. Because I have found the word trauma-informed has become one of those buzzwords that... <laughs> um, like a friend of mine, who's also a yoga teacher, her and I were talking the other day and she went to like a trauma informed class and, and she said it was like one of like, like they, the person actually brought them into an aroused state and left them there. And it was just like, she was like, what about that was trauma informed? Like she was so upset because it was so not like, clearly the person hadn't done the work to understand how that was going to respond in one's body to even know what, like, it was just like, this is, I think these words are just used because it's like going to attract people. Um, when really it does come down to like our own understanding. Like if, if I, um, I remember somebody in yoga, they often say like, don't teach what you practice. Um, and I always found that so weird. Cause I was like, 
well, I'm not going to teach what I don't practice because if I don't practice it, if I don't know it in my own body, what right do I have to try to teach somebody else that? And that was a piece for me. Like I, I pretty much like exonate that. Um, other than maybe don't teach what you're practicing. If I'm practicing really advanced stuff and my students aren't like that piece, I always understood, but I was like, I'm absolutely going to teach the things that I've practiced and understood because that's literally what I can teach. Um, so anyway, I just, I really appreciated you saying that trauma conscious starts with the self. Oh yeah. And I think that like, when I even look back on the initial trauma informed yoga teacher training, like something really specific for movement within this vast (laughs) Mm -hmm. field, really, um, even then it was missing. What do you notice about yourself? Like there, there has historically been missing this key somatic piece, right? It's unexplored territory. We don't have a lot of somatic literacy, which is what I work on with people in classes and especially in one-on-ones is Mm -hmm. let's develop somatic literacy Mm -hmm. because we have all sorts of literacy, but we don't really have a a vocabulary all the time, a shared understood space where we can kind of pull in and be like, Oh, I'm feeling really activated. Mm -hmm. Great. How is that showing up in your body? What do you notice? Right. What do you notice? And for, you know, fair enough, there's people who like dropping in is a really distant process to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just kind of can't quite get there. Uh, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to like, what do I feel in my body? Mm, wet, hot, like, yeah. <laughs> guesswork, right? About bones or blood or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for other people, it happens really rapidly where they can drop in and be in the body really quick, but they don't always have a vocabulary for what they're experiencing or why, why they might be experiencing it. Right. So the somatic piece of trauma-informed, a fight, flight, freeze, fawn, f- shut down, uh, and maybe even there's more words coming around this, I don't know. It has to start with the self. Like you say, this is where it's such a beautiful dovetail for like a movement practice like yoga, right? Because you are taught, like unless you know it in your own system, you can't really teach it accurately to anybody else. So this is the piece that I offer people in the trainings that I run. This is about you and your nervous system first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And what do you feel? And then where can we go from there? What can we do from there? So do you I'm sure I've run classes where people are like, no, I know for real, for sure. I have run classes where there are people who are like, ah, ventral vagal. And then other people are like, what the F is going on here? Like, sorry, I'm really sweary. (laughs) I'm trying to catch myself. Don't worry about it. Like I am still feeling activated. Right. And uh, it's just, it can just be so unpredictable sometimes, like how people are going to show up and what their nervous system is going to show them, what their field is going to take them into. Um, so then that's where even more training becomes important. Like, okay, so what do you do next if people are still feeling really activated? And like, how can you tell? And right. Zoom has made it so much more complicated. Right. Oh. <laughs> right. Well, because you can't really see them. Like, and I, and a lot of people don't maybe have the space to even get a camera angle to be able to see enough of them. So it's just like guess sometimes guesswork or I, the thing I pay the most attention to when I'm teaching anybody is just their breath. I try to like monitor that. That's like the easiest thing I find to be able to monitor. Cause you can't sometimes see their face or see any other part. Um, but yeah, no, I totally understand this not being in person thing. Do you find it a harder thing to teach in a group or easier? Like, how do you, or just different? What a good question. Hmm. Do I find it easier to teach sort of trauma informed in a group? 
Yeah, I think that I do. Hmm. Because I feel like group energy is so much more potent. Mm -hmm. Like even when you're doing very quote unquote simple things, Mm -hmm. there's something about being in a group of people that really allows us to explore whether we feel like we're safe in a group space, whether we see people mirroring back to us, like activating those mirror neurons, we're seeing people having similar experiences as to that we are, and that helps us to feel safe and connected. Mm-hmm. If we can feel like we can hide a little bit in a group, whereas a mm-hmm. one-on-one, there's it's a lot of direct interaction. So it allows people to sort of like blend a little bit. But yeah, I really, really think group work is, is great. I love doing it. I'm feeling nostalgic right now. I'm really hungry for group in-person practice again at some point in time. No, I'm missing it. Um, The one-on-one tends to be um, so much more interesting because it, you know, like in group classes, I'm doing broader movement experiences and then a little Mm -hmm. bit of biofeedback stuff. Um, And students right now in Zoom are really on their own. Like Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but it's like you... Let me know (laughs) if I can help or things are unraveling, like hit me up with an email or call me or whatever. Um, Like people are really on their own in this sort of process right now with Zoom for the most part. Um, But one-on-one sessions, we're definitely doing more focusing practice, more SE, more somatic experiencing. Because that kind of has to be done one-on-one, right? Like that's not really a a group type exercise, somatic experiencing. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's safer, safest kind of one-on-one. I do. Because then you have one person kind of holding space for you or sitting across from you and then maybe um, guiding you a little bit or or reflecting back to you maybe what they're seeing or what they might think they might be seeing. Yeah, for sure. And but processing an SE, like um, you can do this by yourself. Like you can do breath work by yourself. Yeah. Um, a lot of relational parts work, uh, inner child work. Yeah. A lot of that can be done alone. But for me personally, it's never felt quite as potent. Right. Or res- there's not been as much resolution. Right. One-on-one for me. Yeah. One-on-one on, one on one or by yourself? Oh, sorry. By myself. Thank by you. By yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a piece with yoga generally that I've kind of struggled with um, because there's a dependency piece in yoga, right? That um, often it's called uh, non-attachment, but um, my teacher actually said that in his, his teacher in Sanskrit translated it more to non-dependence, which is a bit easier to understand because we have to have attachments in life. Um, that, that there's kind of that middle road where being guided somewhere, like I was having this conversation with a guy I'm working with right now. He asked if, if he ever has to meditate unguided, like he's like, is there a benefit to meditate without a guide? He does a lot of guided meditation. And I said, well, kind of depends on, I guess, what you're going for when you're meditating. If it's just to bring yourself presence and you can get that through the guided place, use guided meditations. Like they can, in some sense, take you deeper, Um, because you have the constant feedback reminding you to stay present, coming back to your breath or whatever they're guiding you in. But a dependence can also be formed there that you become reliant on something outside of yourself or outside of myself. And so I kind of said that to him that every now and then I think trying to do a meditation unguided kind of test your own meditation skills, but it also gets you to really understand what it means to just be you with yourself and I find that that um, that's that hard road to travel because 
even me, like I, in a guided class, I'm very different than when I'm doing yoga by myself or meditation. I actually personally don't like a lot of guided meditations unless they're like very like a inner child or like a very intentional one, but just like regular come back to your breath guided ones. I'd rather just sit and meditate myself. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm just like, I totally understand that, that there's, it's kind of a hard road to follow, but you, so do you ever find like, let's say we, let's say an inner child one that's been coming to me a lot lately. Um, have you done inner child work by yourself? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But do you find it, how do you find the difference between when you work with somebody else or when you work by yourself? I've never done inner child guided by somebody else. I've only ever done it by myself. So, um, or in a ceremony type space that the energy field is held, but I'm still doing the work myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That does make sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I like everything that you just said, actually, it gave me lots and lots of thoughts. I feel like the inner child work, I mean, all of this too, like even sitting by yourself or sitting within group or, or being guided audio, uh, you know, so much of it is cyclical and it depends on where we're at in our life. Mm-hmm. So doing inner child work by yourself, I would sort of, I mean, this is an assumption. So maybe I'll change my mind the next time we talk about this, but mm-hmm. I f- sort of feel like inner child work is best done when somebody's already sort of helped you with it. Right. Right. Like somebody's already set some groundwork with it or, or right. helped you to understand some of the facets of it. Right? right. I feel like it's probably most productive and then you can do it by yourself on your own. I mean, that's been a practice I've done, but mm-hmm. it's also been in relationship with journaling, like writing mm-hmm. down and then going back to the person, like my therapist who I work with and then being able to sort of work with that. Like there's almost like an end point somehow with it, with right. another person as I talk about it out loud. Right. But it can be a process that can be done by yourself, depending on how safe you feel. If you're in fight flight, if you're so far down that ladder trying to do inner child work, I don't know if that'll be available to people. Maybe, like maybe it would be, depend on the person. And then the work meditating alone too, like maybe in initial stages of learning how to sit and what works for you and what time of the day, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like having some structure around that initially is really helpful. And then as you continue your practice, you hit a point where you're like, I don't even want anything Mm -hmm. around me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want to smudge. I don't need music. Like I don't need, I don't need any external tools to now be able to arrive with myself and then maybe you'll cycle back at some point in time and be like wow there's something else coming up for me again I'm going to reach out to a teacher or an audio session that I used a long time ago and see if that helps me now like I think we can kind of cycle back to these things depending on what's happening for us that there's I'm not sure that there's ever really like a stage of oh I did it (laughs) I win (laughs) or I'm healed or I get it meditating yeah (laughs) I forgive (laughs) Right. It's always an ongoing process. It is. It's always a spiral, like even forgiveness, like just to use that word forgiveness, which ends up coming up a lot when you're doing any type of emotional resolution, body resolution, trauma work, like forgiveness is a felt state. Mm -hmm. The idea of forgiveness can drop people into their body in a bunch of different ways. Mm -hmm. And forgiveness in my experience is a, is a circular process that at times you can arrive at forgiveness, maybe when you're closer to safe social in your own life in a bunch of different ways, and you have access to that forgiveness, whatever that means for you. 
Mm-hmm. And then something might arise later on in your life, even years later. And you're like, you know what? I don't forgive. I'm mm-hmm. not, I don't feel it. I don't have it. Wow. There's more material to work with. Right. Cool. Yeah. Good, good. There's more material to work with. Great. Let's iron those little brain knots out mm-hmm. right on. And then maybe you arrive back at the forgiveness stage and like, oh, okay. Yeah. I can be here and I can sit with the discomfort, you know, like it, it mm-hmm. becomes more complex every time. Right. Yeah. So it's just helping people learn to kind of navigate that slowly. And that's where I think guidedness helps is it kind of gives them the foundation to then build upon. Cause that's what I said to him as I said, maybe just at the end of your 20 minutes guided, spend two minutes alone with yourself, just give that extra space. And then that can become five minutes if you want or, or not. And if you don't like it by yourself, like I always tell people practice it in whatever way you're going to practice, as long as you practice and don't judge yourself <laughs> so much in how you practice, it's better than being like, hating what you're doing to the point that like, it's not actually benefiting anymore Then just go back to the guided or just go back to whatever was working for you. Yeah, exactly. And that gives a lot of space. And that sort Mm -hmm. of really ties up so beautifully with, you know, that your podcast is called radical authenticity, because I really, really love and have often been accused of offering radical self-acceptance. So, wow, let's say you do accused of what are you? Well, I'm just being a bit sardonic when I say that. Yeah, like, wow, everything is okay in here. (laughs) Like when I sit with people or work with people, like, yeah, like what if everything was okay? Right. Like what if, and not to bypass, like the crappy stuff is the crappy stuff and it's so crappy. It's okay that it's crappy. (gasps) What if it's okay that it's crappy? Uh, And so like if someone's in a sit and they're doing a guided sit practice and they're like, it really worked for me. And I sat for two minutes in silence at the end, just with myself, it felt safe yeah so what does safe feel like right what what did that feel like in your body can you touch use that as a touchstone the next time you go in and then maybe the next time they sit and they're like i sat for a minute alone and i couldn't do it i hated it okay great great good what did that feel like what did that feel like okay Mm -hmm. what might have preceded that what did you do after that like we just get Mm -hmm. sort of curious about everything that shows up instead of like i'm a big failure at meditating because i hated it that one time right or it didn't work, you know, right. Or I'm bad at it. I hear people say that all the time. I'm bad at meditating. I'm like, like you, that that's really not even possible. If you (laughs) sit down and do it, what shows up is what shows up. Like that's, I find, I just find that so interesting. Like I'm bad at meditating. It's like the brain is going to be the brain. It's just, you're watching it. That's it. And then I used to feel that way. Self-disclosure years ago. I was like, Oh no, don't make us sit. Um, And that was because I had a ton of fight flight in my system Mm. that was not resolved Mm. so the request for immobilization the request to immobilize Mm. was terrifying but I didn't know why because I didn't know any of this Mm. and a lot of people will tell you that so when someone is like I hate meditating I'm bad at it I don't do it I'm like wow that's so fascinating like why do you think Mm -hmm. that's kind of curious yeah, like, let's get curious about it. Like, and that's okay. It's totally okay that you don't want to do that. Like, I'm, but I'm really curious about like, why? Well, like, what do you feel when you, I even say the word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know for me and many other people, um, you know, especially with trauma histories, mm-hmm. especially physical trauma histories, which is a part of my personal history, mm-hmm. immobilization is terrifying. Right. Being immobilized, even if it's like a safe immobilization, a sabasana at the beginning of a yoga practice. Oh my God, I used to hate that so much when I was younger. Mm. Hated it. 
I would just be so restless and disturbed for like the first 10 minutes. Cause this was way back in the day when it was always 15 minutes at least of Savasana at the beginning of class. Oh yeah. Oh, classes were 90 minutes. Oh yeah. And you started with stillness. Oh yeah. 15 minutes laying down. I find that so crazy. Like I've told, <laughs> I'll start seated, but sometimes I'll just give people, if you need to move, move with your arms when you breathe, because just some making people come from their day, like in our Western crazy chaotic culture to then be like, okay, now, now sit down and lay there. That's crazy. We always feel like we have to do the opposite to cure quotes again, what's right. happening in the moment. Like we have this real Western concept of like how we're going to fix things quotes right. again is to do the exact opposite of whatever's showing up. Right. <laughs> so like, Oh, we live in this busy active life, man. You know what you need to do? You need to lie down right. <laughs> for 15 minutes. So I was like 19, right. I'd be like buzzing in my system, immobilized in this space. Right. And be like, Oh my God, my thoughts would be very complicated because right. I was trying to create, I was creating complicated narrative because I had a very disorganized internal state. And then just near the end, I'd finally like tap myself out and start to sort of feel quote unquote relaxed, settled, and then would start the practice. That's so crazy. (laughs) And then the movement was really helpful because of Mm -hmm. course it allowed me to mobilize, to answer the request of my system, which was like focused, safe, intentional movement with a lot of breath involved, right? Wow. Yeah. And then I so excited about vinyasa and ashtanga for a long time Mm -hmm. but that was overdoing it that was almost like too much right there was not enough titration happening or slow drops of of these sorts of things but yeah but that was so long ago christina like i love telling the story because i'm an old person now but when i first started practicing here in calgary there were no studios like Mm -hmm. that did not exist and there were no yoga mats and there were no yoga clothes like you brought gym shorts. People just had gym shorts. Wow. <laughs> you brought yeah. your gym shorts and changed into them and then put a towel down and practiced on your towel. <laughs> and classes wow. were always 90 minutes. And we always had tea afterwards with the teacher. Interesting. Yeah. I wish that was a thing. I wish yeah. that stuck around. Me too. Me too. There was lots of discussion and there was lots of philosophical discussion. Like that was never, ever missed ever. Right. Um, Sanskrit was never missed. So when I went back to yoga, when it was sort of like blossoming, all of a sudden everything was in English and I didn't know what to do because I had learned everything in Sanskrit. So I didn't know what they were talking about. Oh, wow. So it was like this whole relearning of like, oh, that's what you're calling this in English. Oh, okay. I didn't like realize that. Right. But those were really beautiful moments. Like one of the very first places that I ever practiced at was the One Yellow Rabbit rehearsal space, um, One Yellow Rabbit Theater Company, uh, when it was above a framing store on 17th Avenue, hmm. like right down in the business district. And so this yoga teacher got to use their nice big theater rehearsal space. Like hmm. there's nothing in there, right? And I was 19 and in university and working. And I would go and it was really boring because I could put my leg up the wall right. and wrap my feet around my neck and, right. and, and, and. So there was a lot of me just being like, this is not hard. I'm very flexible at 19 years old, yeah. but I would leave. And I have the very, very clear, distinct memory of leaving those classes. And I realized in those moments, I was like, oh, I feel grounded, right. but also energized. Right. 
And for a lot of people who have experienced trauma, especially physical trauma, mm-hmm. um, that is not a common experience. Right. Because they don't want to be in their body. They can't. It's they not can't. accessible to them because they're just right. stuck in a survival state on some level in a lot of ways. So is that like, cause I, I, part of the other thing about this podcast that I, that is like an intention of mine is to get people, I feel like people think healing is like such this ambiguous thing and it's like so hard. Um, and, and it is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It like healing is, is hard, but our bodies are naturally wired for it. They want it, they crave it. Um, and like when I've been listening to your speak today, I almost think like this is where people should start. Like if ever anybody needed to start somewhere, it's like, start with your nervous system. I'm high-fiving you. <laughs> you can do it. Online with that. Yes. Just that basic. And maybe this will all change in like 10 years from now. Right. We'll think like, oh, we don't even use those terms anymore. But like for right now, what a great understanding. What a fantastic mm. understanding to have. And like to, to unplug the shame from these states, which perpetuate, perpetuate them. Like, it's okay if I'm in flight. Wow, cool. I'm in flight right now. Okay, let's slow it down. This is what it feels like. This is where I'm at. If we have that capability in the moment, right? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah. yeah, And the idea of healing too, like I never even use that word. I don't even, I don't use the word um, heal very often at all. I don't use Hmm. the word believe very frequently. I don't use the word, um, what's the word that everybody uses when they do like trauma release? I never, I really don't use the word release hmm. either. And I haven't heard that one, but yeah. Like, tr- like TRE is really fascinating, but I always bump into the word release, trauma release exercises. I'm like, I don't know that we're releasing it. I'm not sure that's what's happening. But I do really, really like that you mentioned that um, this idea of healing uh, could be seen as or understood as a coming home to the, a safe self, mm. like feeling at rest in the self, because mm. like you say, we are naturally wired to, uh, are we though? We are wired to survive, but I think we're spiritually wired to thrive right. and to uh, be in some sort of um, window of tolerance, balance, safe social balance. Yeah. And every cell in our body is designed for homeostasis. Every cell in our body is designed for homeostasis. Everything in our system wants to come back to a homeostasis, which is balance, an intake and an output. Mm -hmm. Our whole world is seeking and always working with finding homeostasis all the time. The very planet that we live on breathes once a year, has a breath once a year, and in and out. We We are meant to, I think, come back to rest point where we can regenerate. Absolutely. Regenerate. That might be the better word. Um, the other words that I've started using is, um, integrate that we have to integrate. I heard that. I heard that said once that trauma, um, you can experience a traumatic event and not have trauma. And the difference between those two is whether the experience was integrated or not in the system. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So for me anyway, that was like, okay, that can make sense between. Yeah. And that's why I think sometimes people don't think they have trauma because they didn't quote unquote experience a traditional, what we think of as trauma, but they still experienced a traumatic event that has left a trauma response because it didn't get integrated. 
Yeah, beautiful. What a succinct way to put that. Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think we're starting to reframe the understanding of trauma too. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, trauma for a long time has been really generally understood as like something really bad happened to you. Right. And now you're suffering because of it and, and you have a lot of issues because of it, right? right. Um, and now we're nuancing that with greater understanding, awareness, and sensitivity that trauma is just something that happened too quick, too fast, too soon, too much. And we weren't able to process or integrate it. We mm-hmm. were not able to, and the word that I'm using lately, and I might change this again, but right now what's resonating for me is we were not able to find victory. We did not mm-hmm. arrive at a victorious moment mm-hmm. in, the, in these moments. And so, and we see people who have experienced a traumatic event and don't have, uh, you know, think that they must not have trauma because they don't remember it. Like, you know, there are people who are asleep in car accidents, and they wake up in the hospital and they have no memory of the accident. They were fast asleep in the accident. And sometimes you will see, and I want to be careful around this, but like specific body patterns show up in people who didn't even consciously experience the trauma. Right. A, a curve to the spine, a curve to the body. The body will tilt and twist in order to take impact and then deflect it or have it shoot through the, the joints of the body and out, which is an integration of processing and integration, Right. Mm. A repatterning almost. So people right. who are like, I don't even remember that car accident, but man, now I've got this like the <laughs> body remembers. The body remembers. Trauma is an injury, mm-hmm. not an illness. Right. Yeah. Right. It's it can be a bit of a wound sometimes for people, but wounds heal if they're given oh. the right circumstances. Oh, there's right. that word, I guess I do use it. <laughs> I think it has meaning, but like everything that can be diluted and then it can kind of lose its meaning when, when it's kind of, yeah, either overused or just not used in the proper form. Um, yeah. There's such a seeking around healing. I'll just add this one thing. There's like, you know, what you brought it before about your teachers sort of parsing out, um, non-attachment versus non-dependence, right? What a beautiful way to sort of nuance that too, because healing was really big for a while. And I think Mm -hmm. it still is like, I've got to heal. I've got to heal. And yeah, yeah, I get that. Sure. When you live in discomfort, ah, that's all we want is a moment of peace. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like, we're not always taught like that healing means that it doesn't mean you're going to go back to be the way that you were before. Right. Like there's a new version of you that can be sort of rebirthed out of what's going on for you. And there's a grief that goes along with it too, right? Yeah, 100%. Sometimes there's a saying goodbye to aspects of ourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, So I actually just want to move into something and and kind of like speaking on what words mean um, just before it kind of goes into this. Um, You have in your Instagram account that you are an intersectional feminist. Um, and I'm curious what that means to you. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I try to be very honest when I sit with people too. And they're really curious about what I do. Like, mm-hmm. like, what, what do you do <laughs> when I had my office? Oh, I miss my office at Evolved. Mm-hmm. But it was like, what are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? Um, and if the conversation sort of flowed there and I would hope it would, you know, I was really honest with people that I'm like, I operate out of it in trans positive intersectional feminist viewpoint and if you think of an intersection where a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of converging lines meet 
intersectional feminism is an acceptance and understanding that a whole bunch of different life experiences will converge and can meet with clarity. Mm-hmm. So we're taking on an understanding, almost like think of a prism color wheel with all the lines that separate them. We are understanding an intersectional feminism that there's a lot of people that don't look like me, that don't sound like me, that haven't had my experience as a cis white female, mm-hmm. and still my feminism includes them. It includes everybody who identifies as a feminist and also people who don't. <laughs> right. And I, I guess I get that part kind of like, um, I've, I've, I'll just be perfectly transparent. I have pretty much always struggled with feminism. Um, I had it explained to me once that um, feminism is about equality. And I'm like, then why not choose like humanism or why not choose a word that actually resembles equality rather than a gendered word that didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> um, and, and I guess like in, like when feminism first started, it was back when things were extremely different. And I know like there are still inequalities, but it started when the inequalities were vast, 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 vast beyond what they are currently. Um, and so the, it's like that idea that feminism is correcting that so they use the word feminism to bring it up to equal for me I guess I'm kind of like I just struggle with it because like if we want to then make it more inclusive why don't we change the language to be more inclusive is just like a place that I get to it Mm. um and I just wondered how you feel about that or what if you could help me with that even so Yeah. Yeah. I really, you know, I want to speak to your honesty. Like, Mm. thank you so much for sharing that with me. Mm. I think that can be hard for people to put into words and it can be scary to say that because Mm. there's a fear of like backlash Mm -hmm. when you say like, I don't feel it. I don't understand it. It shows up this way. I've had these questions. Like I understand that it's putting yourself in a really vulnerable spot. So I want to honor your vulnerability in that. Thanks for sure. Um, And I can feel with those questions, like the women behind me, the super rad, really, really located feminists behind me who are like screaming about how to explain it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can feel a multitude of voices. So I want to sort of put it into a way that feels most authentic for me. And then I want to leave a little space open that, you know, maybe I'll change my mind about it. Or maybe I'll remember something that'll add a little bit to it. But just in this moment. There's a historical context like you brought up, Mm -hmm. especially the most modern iteration is the suffragette movement and the first part of the last century and even the century before that, um, where women were very, very brave in standing up and saying, like, we want to uh, vote. (laughs) We might like to own property. Mm -hmm. We ourselves would like to not be property. Mm -hmm. We think that we're actual human beings with rights and self-agency. So there's a historical context to calling it feminism too, mm-hmm. that it's understanding that there are women who have walked the path before us, mm-hmm. identified as women. Mm-hmm. And then you look into the second wave of feminism, which is where I'm mostly educated in and actually have been trying to unravel a lot of thoughts and, and teachings around feminism in the second okay. wave of, of feminism, which is like the 70s. Uh, which was, you know, during very formative part of my life when I was born in the 70s, which was uh, really like, we want to occupy men's spaces. We have been left out of men's spaces. 
we want to occupy them with full rights. So we want to have the jobs at the top. We want to get paid the same way. We want to have the same power, access to power, the same access to sexual freedom, reproductive freedom, financial freedom. And to occupy these spaces, we are going to absorb sort of the behavior and the look of men in these spaces. Uh, And yeah, like that's really important to understand, I think, because there's a lot of like the word turf gets thrown around a lot. And my intersectional feminism includes turf. Cool. And, okay. and that's, I feel people so mad right now that I'm saying that, <laughs> but it does. Because for a lot of women, um, older women, especially right now, as they age into nursing homes, their entire being revolved around their physicality of being a woman, of right. what was termed being a woman, was menstruation and breasts and showing up in reproductive rights and having children or, or trying for the love of God to access abortion right. and being declined. So a part of their personal agency was always taken away from them simply because of their biology. Right. And that is a very female centered experience Mm -hmm. for that point in history. So there's that word again, female feminism. Mm -hmm. And then there's a third wave of feminism and then even like a fourth and a fifth wave of feminism, which I'm just like paddling to keep up to. Like I really Mm -hmm. rely on a lot of younger feminists to help educate me, honestly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) help me learn because I know there's more to learn. The minute I feel like I'm bumping into something, that's when I'm like, oh, there's something here for me to explore. Totally. Yeah. There's got to be something else here. Like, why am I bumping into it? Right. This is an interesting place to be. So the word feminism, in some cases, is going to stay that way because it centers the experience of women. Mm-hmm. The minute we take the, the word fem out, we are no longer centering women in that declaration for rights, which we are still fighting for, even basic economic rights in North America. We still have not reached economic parity. So we're trying to center that experience. Now that gets complicated because there's a whole degree of people out there who will say, we have to stop centering white women. White women need to now learn and we need to start centering BIPOC voices or Latinx voices in here. We need to start centering trans voices in this experience because they haven't had access to voice, to speaking their truth because it's been dominated by white women. And that's kind of where I've arrived at. I'm sitting back now trying my very best and bumping into a lot of second wave feminism ideology that I was taught to center other voices because they don't have the platform that I have had that I've never even had to actually look at before because it's been the water that I swim in. It's never even dawned on me that I have a ton of privilege because I'm past as a white woman like ever. I mean, in some cases, as in my childhood, it did sort of come up, but, you know, I was never asked to examine that privilege and to examine that I just had more access and to network and to space and that my voice actually carried a little more weight to it than, than someone else, like a, a First Nations or Indigenous woman. Hmm. When women go missing, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And when white women go missing, that's on the news. And if it's a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes who's quote unquote sexually attractive, that's a documentary. Mm. That's a 2020 special. Mm. When it's a missing and murdered indigenous woman in Canada, we never know. And it's never solved. Mm. It's an issue. It's an issue. So by being an intersectional feminist, by trying to hold space for all of these diverse voices and experiences, it's, <laughs> it can feel like a big job. Right. 
But the practice is to make space for other people's experiences and that they are just as valid as my own. I like that. That's literally, um, hmm, thank you for that. Cause that's probably, um, I be, I'm somebody who I kind of struggle with identities in general and like saying I'm something, um, I'm like a six year yoga teacher. And this is probably the first year I ever called myself a yoga teacher because I just, it's just like, it's just a way that I've been for a really long time. Um, that I just find it really hard to, to even identify as something. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it for me is like, how do I, how do I own, um, own a word or like say that I am something, um, when fundamentally all that I truly believe in is that everybody should be whoever they are and have the right to be whoever the hell they are with as much dignity and respect as possible. And I don't know what words signify that other than those words. Right. So, um, yeah, but that's interesting. That's, that's basically how you would conceptualize intersectional feminism is just like, it's just that there's so many different expressions of human that can exist and they also have a right to exist. Yeah. So then, cause you also then say that you are, um, you say trans advocacy or you're a trans advocate. How do you find that, like you said, because your intersectional feminism does include like TERFs, which I personally hate the word. I also dislike how many isms. I think we have way too many words for things instead of actually talking out what we mean by the words for things, which would be much more harder, but much more beneficial because someone could read intersectional feminist. I actually had a totally different idea of what you meant by that if I hadn't asked you what you meant. Um, but how do you find being a trans advocate and an intersectional feminist that includes people who are maybe against some trans, like how do you, how do you find you hold that? Yeah, what a great question. And I really like that you started it out with like, you know, as a uh, yogic practitioner, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like this is where you and I are very, very similar. Like when I first started teaching yoga, nobody even knew as a yoga teacher because I didn't say those words because I didn't want to apply another layer right. to myself, right? right. Um, and so for a long time, I was always like a bit of a quiet feminist, really. And I really wasn't on social media a whole ton. But even if you go back, it's always been there. Because the I have really recently in the last, well, I guess it's not so recent, but definitely like the last decade have evolved out of like, I can't call myself anything hmm. into coming back into being like, it's okay to show up as right. this. Right. It's okay for me to speak to my experience as this. And a part of this, and, and you know, maybe we'll bump into this a little bit with each other, is that when I show up as a trans advocate, or which I'm qu quite quiet about, like I've often thought about taking that off because that's very private work that I do at this point. Okay. It's very delicate work. But the intersectional feminism and even some of the other things that I do, like I'm an abortion doula as well. Okay, cool. Um, and I never put that out there because I've actually had some kind of frightening experiences around that, just calling just myself need to that. Pause you for a sec. Can you move your hair to the other side? Oh, it's just sure. rubbing on it. Sorry, thanks. No, that's okay. Perfect. Thank you. I forget. But in aligning this way, I have actually unconsciously set myself up against something on purpose. Cool. So by calling myself an intersectional feminist, I have set myself up against a patriarchal system for everyone. 
because this is a systemic thing. The patriarchy is, an, is a systemic wheelhouse that grinds everybody down, that keeps men in spaces that are not healthy for them or helpful for them. Mm-hmm. Like I want my children to grow up being whoever they're going to be without feeling like because they're engendered as a male that they can't cry or have emotional states or show up in a feminine way. Mm-hmm. Parts work is so fantastic for this sort of thing because there are parts of us that are deeply engendered, that are a she or a he. And then there are parts of us when we explore that are a they. Mm-hmm. And there are parts of us when we explore that are an it. Or don't, mm-hmm. We don't even have words for it. Parts work is so fascinating for this type of intersectional work when we start reaching inside. So when we start doing this type of work, we realize like, wow, there's a part of me that is not a she. Mm-hmm. I can feel into an experience that is not a Stacy, that is something else and deserves to be here and deserves to be looked at and explored. And that's mm-hmm. the trans advocacy work because like you say, there are words that are put out there a lot that create more division and anger than actual understanding and acceptance like right. turf, right? Right. Um, man, and that's a brutal like battlefield right now. I don't really get into that very much. I'm kind of like a quiet like... <laughs> Yeah. Listen, then I read and I try to learn and absorb without having a whole bunch of opinion about that. The word Karen is hugely problematic for me too. Yeah. I have a problem with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have a big, just big labeling. I just find, and I've said this in arguments on Facebook a little bit, and I and I I even use the word argument when I try to keep it not an argument. That if someone's in, if the way that someone needs to interact with me is by labeling me a bunch of things, I'm not interested. Talk to me about what I'm saying. Talk to me about what you feel, think, believe, understand that I don't. Talk to me about actual concepts and then we can find a middle ground. But if you're going to come at me labeling me bigot, um, like whatever words, I've never actually been labeled a bigot, but like that was the first one that came to my mind. Um, But just labeling. And that's what I find right now in this culture is we just like then label something as if it mean something, but it's like, well, what are you actually trying to say? Did that person hurt you? Then say, Hey, that hurts me. Then we can get somewhere within the conversation. And so I find like, Hey, Oh, they're a Karen. Well, what, what does that really mean? Yeah. It's It's hugely troubling, isn't it? Like, yeah, we, I had this conversation with my kids Mm. the other night and it was really, really hard because I have two newly teenage sons. Okay. Um, and a daughter who she wasn't a part of the conversation though (laughs) so it was mostly just my two sons Mm -hmm. Um, but the word Karen has been thrown around like in their wheelhouse now as like Mm -hmm. early teenagers like nothing like it's out there in the stratosphere now like and everybody's using it and so we had this conversation where I was like the word Karen to my understanding this label was to identify an experience unique to black people or people of color, where a white woman would use her privilege against them mm-hmm. without repercussion. Mm-hmm. So it was a leveraging of whiteness against non-whiteness in a punishing way. And if I was a person of color, if I identified that way, if that was my lived experience, then the word Karen would be really powerful because it sums up that common experience mm-hmm. that they're like, hey, we have lived this mm-hmm. frequently throughout our life. Like this is not an uncommon thing that a woman in a park uses her phone to call to utilize and leverage the police force right. against a black person, right? 
or a black child or, 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 you know, I have friends who are indigenous first nations and it totally resonates for them. Yeah. So that to me is a word that belongs to another community Hmm. and not to me, Hmm. but now it's become so diffuse and it's become a tool to silence women again. Right. And I had to tell this to my sons. I'm like, we have fought to have voices. We have fought to have emotions. We have fought to be seen in anger and not just niceness. We have fought to stand up for ourselves and not be in fawn. Fawn is a deeply socialized state for women. Men experience it too. Mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. But a lot of women respond to fawn more frequently than men when Mm -hmm. they learn about it. So the discussion with my sons was, please don't use that. Like, that's not our word. Right. Unless you see that actually occurring. And even then, I'm not sure that's our language, quite frankly, that we have privilege to, to, to have that word, really. Right. And they were so upset because they felt so shamed. Like, I felt terrible that they felt shamed by this. I'm like, you didn't know. You don't know because you were just now in the, this whirlwind, this malastrom of like, once again, putting the thumb down on specific voices. Mm-hmm by using the tool of social media of words of shame to silence women because they'll be afraid to speak up mm-hmm. and shut like, up not nice. Right. Um, I feel like the word racism is taken on the same thing though. I feel like that word is now thrown around. Like I was, I was in a park the other day and I just heard there's like some teenage girls running around Um And one of them, and I didn't, I don't know the situation well. I don't know the teenage girls well. It was like in a park split second. And the one girl said something that I heard muffled. So I didn't actually hear what she said. And then the girl's like, well, yeah, you would say that because you're racist. And I was just like that. And it, it just like hit me so much that I was like, man, like when I was growing up, like if you called somebody a racist, that was equivalent to like one of the worst things you could call somebody. And it was mm-hmm. saved for people who actually had the belief of superiority. Whereas mm-hmm. now I find it's thrown in such a way that we're diluting it to the point that it's meaning isn't even there anymore. Like my friend has a 15 year old son who every day tells her what the definition of racism is. Cause he's so bothered by how much it's misused when it actually its meaning needs to be held because it is so wrong at its core value that the more that we call people racists who aren't true racists, the less power we're actually giving that word to actually mean what it needs to mean. And I find that's something that I find really scary right now is we're, we're making the word not mean anything when it needs to mean something. Yeah. Like, I think I hear what you're saying. Like, I understand that and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think I hear that you're saying is it is losing its original impact yeah. if we're using it so carelessly that it's something that needs to be used with care because its impact is should be so great that it should stop us in our tracks, right? Yeah. I'm hearing you correctly. Yes. Now this is where we might bump into each other. I absolutely identify. I, I am a racist. I'm sure I am. And I'm sure I don't even catch it because it's inherent systemically in our culture. I'm blind to my own racist tendencies. Well, no, some of them I'm actually know and have fought against because I was raised in a racist culture in Red Deer. And I know I am. But when I look around and I see a lot of like, 
white people having conversations about this. I'm like, where are the people of color? Because doesn't this impact them? You know, and that's a lot of the argument is like white people centering themselves at the middle of this, like, I am not a racist. Well, yeah, but maybe you need to explore that a little bit because we have a lot of inherent practices that are in fact racist. Um, and it's, it's troubling though, because I know, like I've had this conversation, like we don't, I dove into this in like a 20 hour trauma training that we did. Right. Um, and like, I had someone call me and she's like, man, I am just having so many problems with this. Um, and we talked about it because in essence, like we, we know, like these are, these are holding multiple concepts of self, right? Like I am not a bad person. I don't, drive a truck around Edmonton with fake blood hand splatters on it with a decal on the back that says no one cares about your protest and no lives matter or something like that. And it's a picture of a truck with people flying. And he, this guy has painted his truck with bloody hands. Wow. Like he's driven through protesters. Wow. Like we think like, I'm not that, that is racist. Right. And yeah, there can be a real polarity. But I live in Woodbine. I live in a neighborhood that is right across the street from a reservation. Mm-hmm. And the majority of people in this neighborhood don't even know that or think about it or realize the impact that their life is vastly different than my own. But I don't have to see it. They're, they are over there and I get to be here. So we don't even think about it. We don't even think about the oppression that's happening literally across the street. The fight to be seen as equal. The fight to have financial fiscal agency. The, the demand to have respect for the land. The regeneration of historical trauma. We have historical trauma in our awareness now because of residential schools in Canada. Mm-hmm. Like That's why we even have a concept of it. So I accept in my own experience that at some level, even if I on the surface am not a racist, that on some level I have been conditioned to see things in a certain way and experience them in a way that gives me a lot of safety, but not if I was a First Nations woman. So I guess a disconnect, and I'd be, I, I'm really curious of your um, view here, is the word biases. We have trained biases, but to me, the word racist and racism means that I hold a superiority above somebody else, that I deserve more, that I, that, that kind of mentality of like, that's at least the definition I grew up with. Um, I know words can change definition, but to me, that's the one that makes more sense to me in terms of racism, that one race is more superior to another or one's race is more superior to all. Um, And so I I can't identify at all at holding that belief because I don't, and I know I don't, and I know I don't from my whole lived experience. Do I have trained biases that might reside in me? Absolutely. Absolutely because everybody does. And so I think that for me personally, I just wonder if we, if, and, and I don't know, and I don't know, but if talking about it, distinguishing these two, if it would give back the power of the word racist so that when we actually identify somebody as racist, instead of 
throwing it out there every time somebody says something you disagree with, with a person of color or something like that. Um, we might be able to deal with things a little bit better because calling people racist who actually aren't isn't getting the point across, but examining your biases or, hey, that's a very biased statement because of X, Y, and Z. I just wonder if that would actually expand the conversation rather than contract it. Whereas right now I feel that's happening public, like more kind of culturally, the, the conversation is just being very polarized and contracted instead of expanded. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is being polarized for sure. You know, I sit very comfortably saying like, yeah, I have racist biases that I'm not even aware of because I live in a white supremacy culture. Hmm. I, I live in a white male dominated culture that, that is dominated by white men. Like they're the beneficiaries of everything. That's not to take away difficult lived experiences. It's mm -hmm. to include those difficult experiences because it also oppresses white men. <laughs> but the idea of using the word racist, I kind of leave that up to colored folks, to people of, of different experiences. And have I ever had that word lobbed at me? I haven't. Okay. But if I have, if I do, I hope that it gives me pause to reflect why. And then to be able to actually parse out where there might be some truth, or maybe there's no truth in that moment. Okay. I accept that I have inherent racist tendencies without even seeing them or understanding them, because this is the water I've swam in since childhood. And I've worked really hard at dismantling some of the most obvious ones of them. Mm -hmm. But bias, it's funny that you bring that up. It's actually really great that you bring that up, because we all think that we can just examine our own bias or have it pointed out, and then we can figure it out. There's a ton of research that supports that we are able to really clearly point out another person's bias. But mm -hmm. when it comes to identifying our own, we don't. We can't. Right. Right. We just don't. Because it's, you know, it's that saying, like, get a fish to describe water. Like, they wouldn't, because that's just what they live in. That's just what they're absorbed yeah. in, right? So that's the same with our biases and probably our racist biases as well. Like I bumped in a whole bunch to masking because there was this um, conflation of like wearing a mask with like maybe being a Muslim woman or coming from a culture where faces are covered. Mm. And like, wow, mm. that's racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, holy moly that's problem that's deeply problematic if you're doing work that wants to you know deconstruct uh you, you want society that feels connected right or feels right. like everybody's equal well wow there's something to sort of consider in oneself like huh am i conflating mask wearing with like mouth covering and wow does then that really mean that i think that women whose faces are covered don't have self-agency or voice hmm is that really true though like is mm -hmm. that a how many people do i know personally who wear face coverings that i can right. ask right. oh i don't because they live in another neighborhood than i do huh so you can start to parcel this apart. And it's like the layers of the onion too, to use lots of mixed metaphors today, right? Like the worst racists are the outside of the onion. And you're like, man, you proud boys, you're racist. Mm -hmm. Like, give me a break. Mm -hmm. And then you peel it away. Yeah, there's a group under them. Oh, there's a group under them. Uh -huh. I but I also live in this culture. And one of the, you know, the things that really got this rolling for me many years ago, I was like, yeah, wait a minute. That's kind of true is, you know, Matthew Remsky brought up, like, we're teaching yoga and yoga spaces. Where's all the Indian people? Mm -hmm. Where are the people from that culture? Why are they not in yoga spaces? Why do we not see them? 
why is that? Because they exist in our city, but we're not seeing them in our classes. Why? But it's interesting because if you go to India, like, and, and these, I, th- I think this is where I kind of bump up against things. Um, like when I went to India at other Indian classes and I sought out the ones trained by, um, taught by Indians, it's like when things are a part of your culture for so long, you push it away. So it's not as like in India, trying to find an authentic Indian in India teaching yoga was hard, was hard to do because a lot of like, it's, it's just like that part of their culture that they like kind of take for granted sometimes. Like there's parts of our culture we take for granted sometimes, whereas it came to us and it like answered questions for us over here that we didn't have access to. And so sometimes I think like asking why are there no Indian people in Western yoga schools well the people who came from india to the west came for the west they didn't come from india to the west for yoga so maybe they like that's not what they're interested in and so i just find sometimes we get we we make that out to be something potentially racist or not when really it's just people following what they're interested in and it turns western people are seeking something that they didn't have and indian people came to the west to seek something they didn't have So I just, I I get kind of bogged down sometimes in thinking that it's a racist thing when it might just be what different people are called to do. Um, I don't know. I I was happy that in my yoga training, I had an Indian woman teaching me Sanskrit because I didn't want to have somebody who didn't speak the language and didn't come from that teaching me Sanskrit. So I was like super stoked that I actually got trained Sanskrit from somebody who teaches Sanskrit as a living. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's just, it's, it's an observation I've, I've had when I was in India and coming here that I would probably be slightly unpopular with people. Um, yeah, I'm just curious. Anyway, if you have reflections on that. Yeah, that's a great observation. Like, I think that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Like, ab- absolutely, that white folks in the West have venerated and recreated and molded and shifted and shaped and applied and taped together and broken apart and all sorts of things, this practice that we call yoga, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for people maybe who have come to the West from the East to live, they're not, it's just not a part, the way that we practice, maybe how practice shows up for us is just not even what they're used to doing. And Mm -hmm maybe they're not going to go because it's just not a part of their life. Like there's a great Baroness Von Sketch show sketch. Like, I don't know if you ever watched that show. It's so great. Canadian humor is so funny. And it's a yoga practice. And um, a brown woman comes in and every, all the women start venerating her as the teacher just because she's brown. Right. (laughs) It's, it's such a, it's such a sweet way that they twisted the script a little bit and get you to look at things a little bit it's quite funny they're so smart there's that's such a funny show what's it called uh baroness von sketch show it's okay. a cbc production they're so it's over now oh there's it's just so funny though but okay. that's they do a bunch of yoga ones but that's one that's really good they do it's like sketch comedy mm-hmm. um but you know like i had students when i taught at the ymca like i i had people from india coming and practicing in my class because they were recommended to me by their um pandit to come and practice with me because it was sort of closest to what maybe was they were used to. Right. 
So I had a population. I did have a population and they were consistently inviting me to temple and I never went. And I feel Mm -hmm. so bad about that. But yeah, like they, it was a safe space for them to come and practice. And it was similar to what they might've wanted. Um, So that was, you know, got me really thinking. I'm like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute. But when we start pointing out like, well, how come we're practicing this practice from the East, but we're not seeing a lot of people in our classes. I'm not sure that that question is like, that there's an answer that is like, cause we're all racist jerks. It's a question to start parse things apart a little bit and start to open things up and be like, huh, that's an interesting question. Like you use mm-hmm. the word reflection. I might reflect on that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean we're all racist, right. but it brings up more questions. Huh? Well, what's my own perspective on this? Right. Like how, do, how does that impact people? What does this mean for me? And that's really the work of being, I think, or trying to be anti-racist isn't about labeling people and creating divisiveness, but is about intellectually and skillfully observing what we may have unconsciously absorbed without realizing it, Mm -hmm. that colors our lens with how we see and experience the world. It doesn't always have to be overt, although a lot of it is overt. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of overt racism that just sort of like floats around. Right. Uh, But we don't see it. We're blind to it because this is the water that we've swam in. One of my good friends growing up, her father was from South Africa. Um, And he had black in his family, but his family passed for white. But part of his family did not pass for white. And they had to come and visit in the dark of night to visit and see each other, the sisters, his mom and her sister. Um, because they don't, they didn't want to color the white passing family. Like it would be bad for them to be known that they had black people in their immediate family. So he came here and that was his experience. And he told us, I remember as teenagers, he's like, Canada is no different. Hmm. It happens here all the time. And we were like, what? But we don't have apartheid. Like, what are you talking about? That doesn't seem fair. And as someone from South Africa, his experience was like, I go, here's my cat again. I go to, you know, a, a bar in Red Deer and everyone's falling down drunk and one Indigenous person falls down drunk and everyone points the finger and says, look at the drunk. I don't want to even say the word, like Indigenous mm-hmm. First Nations person. Like whites get to pass all sorts of bad behavior, but people of color are not. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, mm. they're the waters that we swim in. There's, there's an inherent unfairness that we don't always have to experience. So I think that like what's most helpful for me in trying to parse all of this out is giving my ear over and trying to center in my own experience, the experience of other people. Mm-hmm. I want to know. I want to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's not to fault me or throw the word around at anybody else and use it as a weapon. It's about me learning. Like, wow, how do I learn a lot of these unconscious biases that I neurologically cannot even be aware of? Mm-hmm. So in the 20 hour trauma training that I've done, there's always been a piece on like, what does it mean? Like, how can we skillfully offer what we offer from other cultures in a way that's sensitive and trauma informed? Mm-hmm. And now I don't offer that anymore, because it's not my place to talk about that. It's not up to me to center myself in that conversation anymore. And I have a good friend from the U of A who is uh, an Indigenous woman who comes and shares her experience and what it means to be a woman of colour in this society Mm. and to see her own practices actually availed upon, capitalised and commodified by by white people. Right. It's very, very impactful because there are just things that we would never be aware of. Hmm. 
And then that's, that's that piece that I like of that, um, like raise up, raise up colored voices type thing. Like that's where you can go out of your way to include them and tell their story rather than educate as if it's ours when it's not ours type thing. That's right. And that's being trans, that's being, you know, intersectional, right? Right. That's where lines converge. And then there's choices that can be made around that. Okay. So I have one, I guess, kind of last controversial question and (laughs) we can potentially not do it because it's probably one of the most controversial, um, with trans advocacy. Um, and I'm, like I said, at a very base level, I think every human deserves respect for exactly who they want to be. So if someone wants to be or feels they are, or all like their expression of self is as a woman, as a man, regardless of what they are, they should have the right to do that. And how do we apply that in a way that honors everyone? And the place that I think that this converges the hardest, which is what I'm gonna ask just your opinion on, um, is in sports. So specifically trans women coming and doing sports with biological women. I think that's the hardest place that we see this creating um, equal opportunity. Um, and I just wonder if you, if you have an opinion on it, or again, we can even just X nail out this question and skip to an ending one, because it's one that um, I've had lots of quick questions. I, um, two of my friends who um, we're gay guys. We used to talk about this a lot. Um, and, and it's just a question that I really myself would like to find an answer to that's going to respect everybody because that's what I would like. And I do wonder if that's actually even possible and what that could look like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were speaking and even in some of the other things that we've discussed, I always refer back to how my body's feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I always go back into like when things are big, when things feel really big, Mm -hmm. I always go back into like, what's my body doing right now? Like, am I going into like some tension postures? Cause this just feels like it's kind of a big thing. Am I collapsing Mm -hmm. a little bit in my body? Like how how does my breath feel, you know? And like, this is kind of one of those questions that man just takes my breath away. Right. Like it's so complicated and uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess everything that I would offer would be an opinion and like, it's you know what I tell my kids about opinions everyone's got they're like belly buttons Mm -hmm. everyone's got one they don't do much Mm -hmm. everyone's got an opinion but they don't actually do much of anything just to have an opinion right that's the big discussion with my kids around opinion um so I guess the first thing that kind of comes up around my opinion about this which obviously means my inherent biases and all sorts of things Mm -hmm. is I personally haven't had the experience of a trans person in sports so I haven't had like my kids come home from school and say I'm not allowed to participate because they see me as a boy but Mm -hmm. I am a a woman I am a girl and now I am not allowed to participate in x y or z like I haven't had either of those or I haven't had a kid come home from school and say like um, someone is participating and they can't or something like that right it's like Mm -hmm. I don't know so I don't have I guess what I'm saying is I don't have a personal experience with it to draw upon um and I think of like 
like what's the runner in South Africa? Oh, I can see her, but I can't think of her name. Do you know who I'm talking about? Like she's a, uh, uh, is that short- the CC or is that something else? God, I can't think of her name right now. So my, oh, I'm so mad at myself that I can't quite grab it. I can't quite grab it. But anyway, um, this is a woman who has run women's races, but shows up physically very, very, very masculine in terms mm-hmm. of like muscle content and size and then her speed, like she blows everybody away. And when they've done hormone testing on her, she shows up hormones that are mostly masculine, but she's born as a woman. I don't think, but I could be wrong. She might identify as intersex, but I might be wrong. I'm not I I don't know. But mm-hmm. that was really controversial in the, in the news a number of years ago because it polarized people because they're like, that person's obviously a man. They sh- show up mostly masculine in their hormones. They look masculine. They outrun every biological woman on like, this isn't fair right. kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And yet this person was like, I am a woman. Right. And I'm a fast woman. And I'm a black woman. And I won. You know, there was... Mm-hmm. She had to really fight to be seen. Sorry, my phone is ringing in the back. So that was, you know, that was really interesting and kind of painful to watch. Mm -hmm. That was really painful to watch. I mean, this would really depend on the circumstances. I'm not seeing a whole bunch of trans people showing up and being like, I want to run in the school race against the girls who don't run as fast and I've understood to be a boy. You know, like I just haven't seen that happen. There seems to be a lot of fear around trans experience. There's lots of fear. There's yeah. lots of fear about yeah. bathrooms and everything else. I haven't seen it. I haven't experienced it. I've seen the fear. I've seen people be afraid of it, but I've not yet once in my personal experience known of a person to pretend to be trans to go into a woman's bathroom and sexually assault children or women. I guess the curiosity for people is, do we have to wait till that happens to have an opinion and discussion about it? There are cases that are in on the books like that has happened where someone pretends or is and something terrible happens because there are terrible people, right? Because there are just terrible people, right? Not because trans people are terrible people or they're going to take advantage of this, right? There are just terrible people in the world. It sucks. It's pretty minor though. It's pretty minor. Um, But you know, where's the inclusivity here? Like, mm-hmm. everyone needs to show up exactly as they are. And this is a big learning point for so many of us is that sexual identity and gendered identity is very complicated. It is mm-hmm. all sorts of shades of gray. Mm-hmm. It's not just black or white. And we've been fighting mm-hmm. against that for a long time. Yeah. Like, there's all sorts of sexual expression and gendered expression. Yeah. that have always been there and seem to be showing up a lot now to people in like popular culture. Cause they're like, Oh, well now everyone's trans cause they're allowed <laughs> when really it's the other way around. Like, no, now they finally feel safe. Mm-hmm. Like how do we create safe space? So maybe it's less about like, how do we stop it or prevent it or make it fair? And it becomes more about like, wow, maybe if we're going to complicate our thinking, and this is what I encourage people to do, complicate your thinking. If things feel really black or white for you, you're bumping into big emotions in your body, your body feels really activated, complicate things, ask questions. Mm -hmm. What's going on here that I don't seem to understand, but I get really activated about? What's this group of people talking about? How can I understand it at a deeper level? How can I, you know, create a different lens or a new facet on my experience? Maybe sports becomes just as diverse. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. or reflects the diversity somehow. I don't know. I should ask my mm. husband though, because he's trained as an athletic therapist. Mm, <laughs> like that's that'd be his actual education. I wonder what he'd think about that. I'm not sure he's put much thought to it, but I could be really wrong. I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and that that's when I think that's where my thought gets to is that. Um, and I, and it was actually posed on Joe, Joe Rogan in terms of just fighting, um, and not even with trans, but he just said, you know, um, in fighting, they have weight classes and that's kind of the classification of how they divide it up. But what if we could actually divide it up to, um, hormone composition, that that was a better marker for who was more fair to fight, to fight or compete against each other in different things. Um, so it could end up being that just it has nothing to do with trans, but some men and some women, it is more fair that they just blend. And then there's women and men. And then there's just like kind of this more bigger continuum. And that that might be the solution that we have to move into that, that then it doesn't matter what someone identifies as or is or anything. It's just, we have this middle ground, this side and this side, and that's what we create as fair, perhaps. Um, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's one that I find the hardest, the one that gets people the most polarized. And I try to talk about things that I think are polarized because that's how we work through them. (laughs) Yeah. That's how we grow. That's how we grow. grow. That's That's how how we we build um, compassion muscles. That's how we do it. So let's say my kids came home and they're like, mom, there's this person who, when we went to elementary school, identified this way. And now we're in junior high school. They identify this way. And now they're mm-hmm. going to want to run on our track team. And it's going to be a problem for me or something like that. Like, what if I, that happens? You know, my immediate discussion around the kids would be like, one, where are you on your polyvagal ladder? Mm-hmm. Because if this feels, if you're in fight, flight or shutdown, you're not going to be seeing this very clearly. You're going right. to be identifying this as threat. Right. And it might not be threat, right? Right. So that would be a question too. Like, where do you feel it in your body? How do you know? Where are we at? And then, you know, like maybe the next step is like, wow, it seems pretty brave mm-hmm. of this person to make this request. Like, are people accepting of it? Do they want to talk about it? Or is it just a big argument? Mm-hmm. So how can we offer more compassion for people who have not traditionally lived in safe spaces or been able to be their genuine, authentic self? Right. How do we create safe spaces for them? How do we encourage this? How do we grow our compassion lens instead of just our contraction polarization habit? Like, how do we do that? You know, my kids, for instance, um, went to school with some, I'm, I'm going to use fake names. And this person went by Sally until grade six. And then in grade six, there was a moment where all of the classes learned that this person was now going by Jim. Mm-hmm. And now they just know this person as Jim. Right. They're just like, yeah, Jim. Yeah. (laughs) And I still have the reflexive habit of wanting to call this person her because I always did for years. Right. Right. So I'm the one who's like stopping myself because this is not how they identify in a safe way. But man, do you know what my kids did? Right. Yeah, it's Jim. Right. They didn't care. They did not care. That's awesome. Yeah, That's so it was awesome. awesome. It was so awesome. And they're just like, yeah, I'm the one who keeps bumping into the things. So there's the growth point, right? When I bump into things like, okay. Well, and I think that is the piece we think about, like, what about the kids when a lot of times their kids are the ones who are going to be able to accept it more because they don't have the years of conditioning that we have and that it's us who are the ones who are, <laughs> um, who are like, yeah, like just, 
just overreacting sometimes when generally if we let our kids and support our kids to figure it out, they're going to figure it out. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say or end with? No, this has just been such a fun conversation. Like, thank you so much because this is so like such juicy material to talk about. And it's so important that we talk about it. Yeah. And there don't have to be conclusions. There can just be other like branches of questions and experience, right? Growth point. Yeah. Well, and that it was interesting when you said that like opinions are just opinions. They don't have much value except that they're how we work out what, what societal norms can be is like taking in various opinions. So they, they have as much weight as we're willing to give them. And we ourselves have to check how much weight we give. Like I, I myself have to check how much weight I give my own opinion over someone else's opinion. And I think that's the piece that you're getting at, but they have value because people can have different viewpoints. And as a society, we have to be able to rectify and take in as many viewpoints and make them as normal and acceptable as possible. And that's the work we have to do as a society. I, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think like opinions have an end point, right? They're like a, they're like a belief that's lodged in the body. Right. Totally. And there doesn't feel like there's a lot of wiggle room around opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Opinion pieces and whatnot. Um, the next conversation to have with my kids as they get older is like, okay, so opinions, everyone has one. Are they all equal? <laughs> Do we give space to every opinion that we hear? Right. Are some opinions and language actually harmful? Right. Do they harm things? Like that's the next more nuanced conversation to have with my kids as they get older. And how to be a bit more flexible with our own opinions. That's when I have I have a a friend who our friendship is kind of dwindled in the last few years and um, he holds his opinions very strongly and it will just say, well, it's my opinion as if it's like, and, and that's something I try not to do too much. Like I'm trying like, yeah, this is my opinion. What do you think? Because like, I want to be able to be a, quite flexible and leave my brain malleable to hear somebody that totally contradicts mine and be able to be like, Hey, actually now I need to rethink things. Um, I strive, I strive to be that way. So, and I think it would benefit other people to be that way <laughs> a little bit more flexible with our opinions. Yeah. Or like, um, noti- or like, and to notice too, like, Hey, you know what, this is an opinion that I've had for a long time. Like I've always felt like Calgary is better than Edmonton. Right. I've always felt that way. Calgary is better than Edmonton and I can list off why here's, here's what supports my opinion, right. <laughs> whatever. Right. Um, but yeah, the great thing about opinions, if we stay malleable, like you say, inflexible is like, wow, we can totally ch- change them. Like they mm-hmm. can actually change. Like I could actually sit back other times and be like, yeah, I'm not, sh- yeah, they're both just cities. Yeah. I don't have to be too worried about one thing being better than the other or whatever. Right. I wonder where I was at in my life at that point in time that I held that opinion. seems like I was in a bit of fight around them, you know, when I kind of reach into my body with this material, the request that my body has of me is to move. So mm-hmm. after we get off of our call together, I'm going to move my body perfect. because it's actually asking for mobilization in order so that this doesn't sit around and like fester into like online Facebook arguments. (laughs) Right. That's literally what I'm doing too. I'm going for a walk. Um, That's what I have to do after the podcast. It's usually because I find it really interesting talking with somebody. um, When I have a conversation with somebody not recorded, um, I don't know if it's like 
because I'm also holding in my body that it's recorded and I'm holding in my body that it's going to be public and I'm holding in my body that other people are going to listen to it. Um, I end up freaking exhausted about two hours later. It's like, it's not, I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily shut down because I don't feel unsafe. Like I, my whole body feels completely fine right now, but, um, there's definitely like a, like a more bigger hold than if I just had this, had this conversation, you and me without a microphone and a video camera in front of us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm going to have to take a nap today. Yeah, totally. I will, to like totally. regenerate. But if this was pre COVID, we had these big conversations. I'd probably have to have a nap too, but I'll probably have to have a much bigger nap because capacity is so much less right now. Right. Like our right. capacity, I think to hold a lot of these really big world events, like we're very challenged at this moment in time. Right. So I guess if I had any like parting, thoughts I was gonna say shots <laughs> for people any like parting sort of like well Stacy, like how are you gonna sum this up like what do you stand for where, where are you standing mm-hmm. you know I think that it would really be always check in with your body how are you feeling what are your feet doing what do you need is it a request to get up and shake do you need a glass of water we're all pretty chronically dehydrated mm-hmm You know, can you accept that sometimes there's some really difficult material happening externally and internally and just be with that? Give yourself a break. Give yourself a break. Give yourself some space. We're all doing the best that we can. I love that. So how I actually do end it is I do a fast seven. Um, I just find it kind of lightens the mood and it kind of brings everything back up. Um, So they're just like as quick answers as you can. I think they're a little harder sometimes, so they're not super quick, but just free association. Okay. Yeah. There's no math though, right? No math, (laughs) no math. Don't worry. (laughs) So number one, authenticity is self self. Awesome. What best describes your learning style? (sighs) Messy. Messy. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Uh, your top book recommendation. Oh. Or three. <laughs> oh, like what are such good books? The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk is so, so, so good. Yeah. Uh, it's dense, but it's really good material. Um, what's another really good book to read? Um, heavy. It just comes to mind. I'll be quick because it's just in my mind right now, but, but that, that Rothschild for people who are interested in trauma, she doesn't get nearly enough airtime and she's a total pioneer in trauma resolution. So anything by Babette Rothschild, she's volume one, volume two, treating trauma. Those are really good. Awesome. And I like that you gave somebody airtime. That's I like that. Um, a daily practice or habit. Checking in on the ladder. Where are you in the ladder? Check all the time. Cool. Awesome. I'm going to bring that in. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, gee, the first thing that came to mind was to go invisible. Interesting. Which kind of surprises me, but that was the first thing that came up. Wicked. Who knew? Um, Who knew? Describe yourself in three words. Oh, super awesome, opinionated, self-reflective, way more than three words. Sorry. (laughs) I love it. And then your favorite obscure food choice. Oh man. Favorite obscure food choice. I'm so boring when it comes to eating. That's okay. I'm not even very exciting at all. It's not obscure, but here's the favorite thing that we're eating lately. Lettuce wraps, everything wrapped up in lettuce. Great. I love it. (laughs) Um, I, I just throw it in there because sometimes it's hilarious and it just, um, Thank you so much for this conversation, Stacey. Um, That was, I learned a lot 
a lot, a lot from you. And I know others will too. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for your time. And thanks for your podcast. And I just, I just love what you represent to radical Mm -hmm. authenticity. We need more of that. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Raw Podcast as part of the Radically Authentic Wholeness Project. We deeply appreciate you and would love to hear how you're enjoying the show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us an honest review, and share us with your friends and family. By doing this, you contribute to our mission of supporting individuals' pursuit of integrated wholeness and authentic self-expression. Are you interested in a total health transformation with structured and simple nutrition? Welcome to Purium. Their products have completely revolutionized my eating habits, my energy, and the overall way I feel in my body. Their ultimate lifestyle transformation was the most supportive and seamless cleanse I've ever done. And I've tried almost every diet and cleansing fad there is. The ULT is a 30-day program with 10 days of intensive cleansing that you can do either alone or within our community start dates hosted about once every quarter. Within the community cleanses, we also host various workouts and inspirations to foster a holistic lifestyle transformation along with the superfood products. Purium's Core 4 Nutrition has become a total game changer for my busy lifestyle to introduce superfood nutrition in a seamless way while supporting my gut microbiome and deep restless sleep in the process. Truthfully, their apothecary juice helped me sleep better than I have in my entire life. So check out the links and the info in the show notes for my personal recommendations or use code RAWPROJECT to get 25% off your purchase to support your health while also supporting the podcast. Please contact me for any questions or to book a free 15-minute health consult through my website or email also listed in the show notes. The Raw Project is currently a single human endeavor, and its productions are purposefully raw and curated organically to create a listening experience that traverses my unending curiosity and insatiable desire to understand this divine experience we're all co-creating. I'm Christine Grace, and I wish you a rad-tastic day ahead.